This was me when I was little, okay? I was a pretty smart kid, and I had my thoughts about sermons pretty early in life, and I used to get super frustrated that I felt like the sermons were on repeat, right? I felt like we would get the same passages over and over again, that the preacher would be talking about the same thing week in and week out. It was like he was recycling his material. And I thought, I have this big, big, wide Bible, and you preach the same 18 passages every year. What is going on? Um, now, as a preacher, I have a little more sympathy for a man who the church I was going to was writing 100 sermons a year. He would preach Sunday morning and Sunday night at least 50 weeks a year. And if you write 100 sermons a year, you're going to probably repeat something a time or two because that's hard. And I didn't realize that as a kid. But it still kind of bugged me a little bit. Um, I also remembered adults that seemed to camp on a single scripture. Um, you probably have all seen the, uh, the, the guy who just loves John 3.16. And so when they do a communion thought, they go, when I come to communion, I just think, I think it's all about John 3.16, because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And then in a Bible study, we'd be like, so let's talk about how we treat our families. And he'd be like, you know what I think about how I treat my family? I just, I just think of John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, so that we should love one another that way. And then we would do something about like uh, proper internet protections for your computer to make sure that your kids aren't on bad websites. And he'd be like, you know, it just makes me think of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so we should give ourselves to protecting our sons from bad stuff online. And it was just the same scripture over and over again. You felt like his whole spiritual development was learning one scripture. And that's a great scripture. But it just seemed like, hey, man, there's a little more to this. Uh, it was this way in Sunday school, too. Um, the old curriculum we used to have when I was a kid in Sunday school was just the same 20 stories every year. We did Christmas every year at Christmas and Easter at Easter, except for those cantankerous teachers who didn't believe that Jesus was born at Christmas. So they did that one at Easter and they did Easter at Christmas just to stick it to the curriculum people, right? Like... Uh, it was just the same stuff. I really appreciate the stuff that Alana and Fran have chose for our kids because it's a little broader curriculum. It gets into some other stories. Fran sometimes goes, we're doing Aiken today. Do you know how you do that with a three-year-old? And I'm like, no, but I'm glad it's a different story, you know? Um, and this is the reason why if you've been here for any period of time, you've heard sermons about Hezekiah and Huldah and Haggai because... I like to talk about different stuff, not just the same thing over and over again. You may be in the pew thinking back to my Haggai sermon going, maybe if you'd done the same story over again, it would have been a little better. But nonetheless, I like to go different places, which makes me very nervous about a passage like our one today, because our passage today is preached on millions and millions and millions of times. And it's a passage that really is a bedrock for how we live. It's a foundation for our faith. It's something that many other things are built on top of. As I went through, uh, you may not know, but I sermon plan for big chunks at a time. So back in May, I plotted out every Sunday for 28 Sundays in a row that we'd go through Matthew. And I usually go through each chapter and pick one piece of that chapter that we're going to preach on. And this week I chose this piece, and later I was thinking, why did I do that? There's a lot of like fun and weird and funky stuff in this chapter, and I chose this boring old passage. But it's because it is foundational. Because it's the kind of thing that if you have heard 135 sermons on this, 136th will probably still do you a lot of good. 
because it's a passage that is just at the core of what Jesus wants us to do and who Jesus wants us to be. All right, uh, Matthew 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Uh, this passage is interesting. I always like to talk about the context of a verse. Uh, it's interesting that Matthew takes this very common teaching section, this I think in at least three, if not all four Gospels, and he puts it in a very different place. Often this is a, a more well-meaning young student who comes and in earnest asks, teacher, how can I best keep the law? And Jesus is help explaining to this earnest student how to do it. This is a trap, okay? Uh, in this passage, Jesus is in the last week of his life. He's been doing controversies back and forth with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Uh, basically, before this, the Sadducees had tripped him up, tried to trip him up on several different things, including weird questions about how marriage works in heaven and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus shoots them down at every school. He goes, you idiots, you don't know what you're talking about. And then he so explains what's wrong. And so the passage says that once the Sadducees were thoroughly defeated in their attempts to make Jesus look foolish, the Pharisees go, well, let's, we'll give a try at it then. And so they ask this question, not as an earnest attempt to understand God's will for the world, but as a way to, to, to trip up Jesus. Hopefully he'll say something that sounds disrespectful about part of the law, and then we can start running, you know, campaign ads smearing his name, right? That Jesus doesn't believe in the law of God because he said this was more important than that. And Jesus manages to give an answer that is very difficult for them to fight with. And it's an answer I want to pick apart. The question is, what's the greatest command? And he said, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, your strength. And the second command is, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and so as he goes through this, I want to kind of pick this apart a piece by piece because it's really easy to gloss over, okay? If you're reading your Bible through the year or trying to get the New Testament read in a month or whatever, it is so easy to look at this passage and go, oh, that one, and you mentally file away every sermon you've ever heard about it and don't think about it. But I want to ask just a couple of questions that I think are significant for us. The first question is about this idea that we love, the first thing we do is love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, and mind. Uh, this seems like a really good church answer, right? We hear that, we all nod, and we go, oh yes, that sounds lovely. Um, but this idea that God comes before other people can be a real challenge for us in our culture. And there's a reason for that. We have all seen people that do terrible things because they think God wanted them to. Or because they think that, that, that they're putting God first. Right? God cares so much about this that I need to blow you up. Right? We can see that across the planet in so many places. And for some of our non-Christian friends, particularly when we go, listen, above all else, even above loving my neighbor, I love God first. They go, oh, geez, here's an extremist, wacko, fundamentalist about to happen. Right? Like, that is a legit concern that people have because there are people running around hurting other people because a voice in their head that they think is God told them to do something 
that is not something that, that is something that harms people. So why God first? How does that work? Why would God why would Jesus put God first and does it endanger other people? And I think there's a couple ways that we can diffuse sort of that logical bomb, so to speak. Um, the first is that God is first because that's just sequentially how things work in the universe, right? That God was here before we were. God was here before our neighbor was. God created us, and he created us in his image. Um, all people are a derivative of God. Human beings are God distilled into something lesser. Now, I don't mean that in any way to say human beings are bad or that we don't respect human beings. It's just remembering the sequence. If anything, Scripture says the fact that we derive from God, that we have God's image in us, actually lifts up the value of humanity, right? That we walk around with our face in some way displaying the glory and the beauty of God. And that's why you treat people well. But nonetheless, it is derivative. It is uh, the creator versus the creation. It would be, um, be very odd to go to a restaurant and just rave and rave and rave about the pizza and have no uh, plaudits for the chef, right? As if the food just popped out of an oven by itself with no chef to cook it. And so there's just a logical thing here. We love God first and foremost because God created us and put us uh, where we are. Second of all, you have to remember that Jesus, when he says God, is not using that term in an empty way. This is something we struggle with uh, often. We use words in lots of different contexts to mean lots of different things. Um, my kids, the other day, we were talking about the way words were spelled and the way words mean. And I realized that I'll say a word and they know one definition, but they don't know the other. And they get really super confused about what I'm talking about. Um, God is one of those words. There are millions of things that different human beings think when they hear the word God. And so people say, well, I'm not sure if we can put God first because I know a lot of people have done terrible things putting God first. But the God that they're speaking of is not the God that Jesus is speaking of. Jesus uh, has lots of different categories. Jesus has personal experience with God the Father. Right? And John, he talks about, I came from the Father, uh, and I know him deeply, right? And so first and foremost, when Jesus says, love God with all your heart, he's saying, love my Father whom I've experienced and who I have an intimate knowledge of, right? That's the first category. But he also is, is referring back to the Hebrew Bible. He's referring to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Moses and a God of the prophets, the God who consistently guided his people. That is some of the category he's filling with. And for us, ultimately, people who live in this day and age, people who follow Jesus, it is the God who is defined and filled, you know, the, the word is filled by Christ. That ultimately the most perfect revelation of what God is like is Jesus. And that is a God who would rather die than to see his children be hurt. Right? It's a sacrificial God. It's a God that cares deeply and is deeply situated in human emotion and human problems. So when, God, when Jesus says, love the Lord your God first, he's talking about a God who cares about humanity and has the regard for humanity that Jesus does. 
And when that is the God that we're following first, we're not going to do some of these terrible things that people who do things in the name of God do because they're talking about just a different deity. They're talking about a different personality, a different uh, entity than we talk about. There's one more logical thing, though, about why God has to be first that I think is really important. Um, and that is because we also have to define the word love and what love means. Uh, our people, we have some people that work in like social services or um, uh, psychology fields. You have seen, if you're in those worlds, if you deal with people, people that do toxic, harmful things to other human beings because they love them. Right? Even marriages that are filled with, say, abuse, they will claim they do it because they love one another. They will control one another because they love them. They will do terrible things. Kids often get in bad situations with parents that do not treat them right because they're trying to love them. But it's because they don't understand the way love really works. Right? There are a lot of things that are done that people think is loving that in the end is not actually good for them. And the reason that we have to love God first is because we have to have the experience of a relationship with God so that we know how to love well. Uh, think about parenting. It's probably terrible advice to tell someone, you'll be a great parent if you just parent the way your mom and dad did. Now, for some of us, that might work, right? Some of us may have had great parents, and parenting like mom and dad would be great advice. I see some shaking heads in here that go, no, I am not going to parent like my parents because you had parents that weren't that great, right? Some of us, I think all of us know at least one or two things we want to do different, but particularly children that grow up in abusive households. They shouldn't parent the way their mom and dad did, right? They need a better standard. They need a better example of what love really looks like, what being a parent looks like. And so the reason that we love God first before starting to love our neighbor is because we frankly don't know how to love. We don't know how to treat people the right way. If you've been in a relationship for any period of time, you know the multitude of ways that you are capable of screwing up a relationship, right? You just know that like we're dumb when it comes to this stuff. There's so many times we go, why did I do that? And we love God first because when we give ourselves to a relationship where we love God and God loves us back and we experience this mutual beauty that is a relationship with God, it's like a catechism that instructs us on how to love other people. And when you experience the love of God first, it makes it way easier to then treat other people in a way that actually loves them. The love of God is this amazing thing that's always fair, that always... Um, is, is forgiving, but also encourages growth, that accepts people as they are while also helping them to be better than they are right now. God has this way of, of bringing us in, but also correcting us in a way that grows us and changes us. And that's a kind of love that we often don't do well. And so this is why you love God first, is so that God can kind of teach you how to love others. Now, we have to talk about something else. Um, uh, yeah, the Bible says that God is love. And so if you want to know how to love somebody, you have to know God first to know even what that looks like. The other issue we have to talk about is this. When I was a kid, I was taught this a lot as a paradigm for this passage, right? The way you find joy is Jesus first, others second, you last, 
right? Uh, maybe you've seen this preached somewhere or taught this way, this paradigm that's put up. And uh, my experience of this church and the culture that we live in, every time we start to talk about something, immediately somebody raises their hand, and this is fine, and they go, well, yeah, but you have to love yourself first because if you have to love other people the way you love yourself and you don't love yourself, you can't love other people, right? This is a challenge that is often made, and I think it's a very cultural challenge. I think the, um, the psychological world that we live in, sort of the self-help culture, there's a variety of things that make that be a really prominent question. And I want to first of all affirm that there is something good about that. Our focus on self-care and making sure that you are living sustainably and you're not just destroying yourself, I think this is good and I think it's godly. And I think it is a intelligent, modern way to talk about and interpret these scriptures. But I do think that there is a downfall or two when we hear Jesus' words to love others as yourself, and the first thing that comes to our mind is, yeah, but the most important thing is that I love myself so that I can love other people. I think it kind of switches up Jesus' horse and buggy. And I think there's some ways that this can work out that we can deal with these problems. Uh, the first of these is to remember that ultimately um, this world of self-loathing, the world of depression, the world of not looking on yourself well, Jesus is just not assuming when he says to love others as yourself. This passage, I think, describes the ancient worldview well. This is Paul in the book of Ephesians. Uh, notice this is a really ugly slide. This is the only person in the entire internet who has created an image with this verse on it, okay? Uh, but Paul says in Ephesians, No man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord cherishes the church. His logical argument here of uh, something totally different is, listen, nobody hates their own body, okay? Nobody mistreats themselves. Uh, you just, people naturally take care of themselves. Um, now, immediately, because of the culture we live in, and I think legitimately, we start thinking about self-harm, we start thinking about depression, we think about suicide, we think about self-esteem, and immediately we'd argue with Paul, that's ridiculous, of course there are people who hate their own flesh. And that's fine, and that's granted. But Paul is expressing the ancient view, which I think has some sense to it, that the vast majority of people have a self-defense uh, reflex, right? The vast majority of human beings, if they see a bus coming their way, step back onto the sidewalk so they don't get hit by the bus, right? Most of us enjoy breathing. And yes, there are unfortunately extreme circumstances where people have issues, but most of us like ourselves enough that we want to keep on living. And this is kind of what Jesus and Paul are talking about when they say things like this. So that the self-preservation instinct is typically there. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he says, well, it means look out for their well-being. Just like most people who don't have some severe problems look out for their own selves and they want to be healthy and they want to, be, they want to live a long time and they want to experience life. You want that for other people. And... Um, they're kind of defining by the majority instead of defining by um, the exceptions. More importantly, we don't, we talk about self-care a lot. My assumption is that most of us don't know how to do self-care really well. Okay? Because I hear this a lot in our culture of like, you need to take time for you. You need to care for yourself. And I agree. But I find that most of the people in my life who do self-care 
end up looking a little bit like this. It involves a couple of beers and sitting on your underwear and watching Netflix. And what I find is many of the times when we do that self-care, the next day when we have to go back to work, we don't feel any better. I think our culture has taught us to self-medicate. I think it's taught us to entertain ourselves. I think it's taught us to distract ourselves. But I'm not sure it's ever taught us to take care of ourselves. And so in this culture of, of self-care, and what does it mean to care for yourself and to have a love of self that then is capable of loving others as you love yourself? I think that's why Jesus gives us the first commandment. That ultimately, when we commit ourselves to loving God first, that's what the Bible would talk about as self-care. Self-care is spending time in the presence of God where you are constantly reaffirmed that you are good, that you are beautiful, that you are loved, that you are capable. And that the experience of the presence and love of God is the thing that builds you up so that then when the second commandment comes and says, hey, I need to love my neighbor as myself, you feel good about yourself because you've just been so long with God throwing so many good things at you. How could you not feel good about yourself? The king of the universe has just lavished me with praise and love and glory. How could I not feel good about me? And when I have that experience, there's the natural overflow. This is why we love God first and others second, is because if, if we do, this is where the self-care part is right. If you are trying to love other people and care for other people out of your own ability and your own reservoir of strength, you're going to tap out empty real fast. The only way that you have the energy to do it is if God is constantly pouring that, that strength back into you, that energy and love back into you. This is true if you're a boss. The only way you're going to treat your employees well is if you allow God to treat you well first. The only way you're going to be a good mom or dad to your kids is if what you're pouring into them is not your love for them, but God's love for you that's then overpouring into their lives. Because he is a source of love and beauty and affection that doesn't stop, that doesn't stop coming. It's not based on the chemicals in our brain firing off the right synapses so that we got dopamine levels rising, right? Like, this is the key to this stuff. You love God first because it creates overflow. And you can operate in an incredibly sacrificial way for an incredibly long time if you just... It's like a jet that's got the fuel tanker like plugged into it flying right underneath, right? It's just more and more fuel pumping into the system because we live out of the overflow. Our, our life can be rooted into the, in the soil that is the love of God. And when that happens, it can produce incredible fruit. People say, well, what about caring about myself so I can care about others? And I get that, but that's because they've been working out of their own reserves so long they desperately need to replenish them. And I think Jesus' vision is that you live out of God's reserves so that you have the energy. Now, don't mishear me. There are, you need rest and you need Sabbath and you need time away, okay? Jesus did this. If Jesus needed rest and recharge, you do. And I'm not preaching against that. But I'm saying that ultimately when Jesus says to put others first, he is trying to kill the selfishness that exists in us. To have a mindset that is oriented towards others. Uh, if you doubt 
the problem of selfishness in our society, please pick up a newspaper. There is not an economic or sociological or geopolitical or whatever problem or catastrophe we have that you cannot root back to someone who at some time said, I care more about what I need than what somebody else needs. And so they do something terrible and that makes somebody else do something terrible, somebody else who does something else terrible, somebody else. Next thing you know, the world is on fire quite literally. And so killing selfishness is what Jesus wants here. I think if we read this passage and we go, well, in the end, the most important thing is caring for myself. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to, to nuance a scripture, and it's another thing to say the exact opposite of a scripture. And what Jesus says here is clear. You give yourself first to God and his love for you, and that then allows you to be the sort of grounded person that can then give radically to other people. And that that's the way it works when it's healthy and good. Um, kind of the last question here. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. The other cool thing about this is when you're focused on others is you really can multiply your resources. In a world where everybody is taking care of themselves, you have one person that's looking out for you, right? If you have a marriage where you look out for yourself and your spouse looks out for themselves, you have two people that are just looking for themselves. But if you live in a church community that has 50 people in it, and we're all radically committed to making sure everybody else is doing okay, you have 49 people who are looking out for your well-being. Right? Like you just, and we all know how that works. There's one day where I'm going to be giving instead of taking, and there's another day where I'm going to be taking instead of giving. And it's beautiful when community works that way, when we're other-oriented. Because then all of a sudden, instead of me having to carry my butt through life, I have all these other people that will help me do it. And there's this beauty in a family that operates that way and works that way. All right. Last question I wanted to ask here is, isn't this just too simple? I read this passage and I'm like, I don't know, Jesus. The whole Hebrew Bible in two, two sentences? Like uh, the, the jerky preacher in me would do a sermon that's like, listen, God gave us 39 books of the Bible. If he only wanted two sentences, he only would have given us two sentences, Jesus. That is far too simplistic, right? That is the process that goes on my mind. How can you take all this and boil it down to two sentences? And I think the answer is Jesus knows how human beings tick. And he knows you need something simple. He's been fighting with Pharisees and Sadducees all week. And he has seen intimately and in person how the more complex and nuanced your ethical teaching is, the more loopholes you have to justify bad behavior. He is seeing a group of men who are literally speaking murderous threats against his life and who later that week will sit him on top of a cross. And the reason they've done it is because they're like, well, if you go to this scripture and that scripture and this nuance and this nuance and you look at this law and you do this, they can leg uh, legislate themselves into a tizzy until hate is okay. Because it's complex enough that you can find the loophole to say this is okay. And Jesus goes, you can't live your life ethically like that. So let's just do this. You want to understand the law and the prophets? You want to sign all 39 books of the Hebrew Bible and the 27 of the New, I think he'd say? Real simple. Here's what you got to do. Love God, love other people. You're set. If you're living your life, if you're driving to work tomorrow, if you're going into your workplace and have a new situation, if you've got to deal with a uh, teacher at your kid's school, <coughs> if you've got to call you know, an aunt or uncle that you don't want to deal with, you know, whatever you've got to do tomorrow 
And you're like, am I doing the right thing? Jesus goes, is this something that shows God that you love him with everything you got? And, is it, and are you treating that person like you'd want to be treated? If you can say yes to those two things, you're probably doing something that's right. You don't need, you know, Leviticus 20.85 to tell you, oh, look, this is specifically exactly what I'm supposed to do. Because we can't live that way, right? E no, even those of us that have Bible degrees, we don't have these encyclopedic memories. And also, it, it, would, it would wear out, right? Believe it or not, there's no scriptures about how to appropriately interact with Twitter. Uh, that's just not something that Jesus got to, Right? And so how do you live life in all of the complexity that we have? You keep it simple. And Jesus goes, you bozos would do far better if you just slow down for a second and ask, am I giving everything to God and am I loving my neighbor like I love me? Because if you can put those two together, then you can usually make the right decision. That'll do it. Now, listen, there's people that do those two things and still mess up massively. Human beings are incredibly good at doing the wrong thing, okay? But Jesus says, let's keep it simple. Because when we live that life, it works. It'd be my encouragement that you live every day trying to do that. Treat other people with the kindness and love and grace and forgiveness, but also correction I mean, we don't usually like it, but when one of our friends says, hey, you're doing this and it kind of stinks and you should knock it off, and we're just, and we have a clear heart, we often go, oh, you're right. I shouldn't do that. But worse is when your kids do it, right? Dad, you said that we're not supposed to do this, but you're doing it right now. And you're like, oh, they're right. But when you can treat other people that way, the world starts to function much more beautifully. But above that, and the thing that enables that, Love God. Give yourself to God. Learn devotion. Learn worship. Learn uh, scripture and communicating back and forth. Learn how to journal. Like, do whatever you've got to do so that your connection with God can be strong. One of my biggest fears is we can create a great church of people that love one another, but if our commitment is not to God first, we are still going to be in a whole heap of trouble. Because if we're trying to love out of our knowledge and our wisdom and our intelligence, we're going to mess it up. We have to go to, to him first and just find uh, pleasure in, the, in, in the, the presence of God. That's ultimately what we have to learn to do. All right. That's the end of my sermon. Uh, if you're new here, we do a Q&A. Uh, do you guys... Uh, have any questions about today's sermon? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, let, let me talk about that. <laughs> I probably use bad shorthand, Bible scholar shorthand. Yeah, it's not just about moving something that happened once to a different place. I'm not totally upset if they do move something. But um, I think particularly the teaching like this, a similar example that's really bothersome to some, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in Luke, there's a very similar sermon called the Sermon on the Plain, which is obviously the opposite of a mount, right? <laughs> and we go, well, which is it? And there's, you know, some of these secular Bible scholars are like, well, see, the Bible is so inconsistent. No. Um, I always hate, I, I don't love the example, but if you listen to a politician, right, like, um, I'll just use this because the example, I'm tip of my tongue. Uh, if you ask someone, oh, where was it that Obama did that speech about change? 
he did a sermon about change 8,000 or speech about change 8,000 times on the campaign trail. And when you're speaking multiple times in a day, he probably did it once in Scranton and the next day in Wilkes-Barre, you know, like he just constantly was saying the same thing over and over again, because you can't speak multiple times a day and not use your same material, particularly if you're a traveling speaker. And Jesus was the same way. The Sermon on the Mount, I bet he gave that sermon 18, 13, whatever times in different places to different audiences. And I think this greatest command, he probably talked about this dozens and dozens of times in his ministry. It's The reason I bring it up is because it's interesting how Matthew gives it in a context of hostility instead of a context of seeking. And it just gives it slightly, here I think it's almost more of a prophetic tone. Other places, it's like, hey, good people that love God, this is the way you love God better. Here, it's like, hey, you self-righteous jerk faces, this is the way you should do it, right? You know, like he can kind of uh, remix it, but given a, a different kind of context. So, do you have another question? This is a tangent, but I like it, so I'm going with you. Like, um, we talk about sort of Darwinism, and all, uh, there's all these fights with the church and science and all this stuff. The thing that's most concerning about a Darwinistic viewpoint aside from all the science and what really happened issues, the main issue for me is it's a, as a moral system. If you truly believe that survival of the fittest is not only the way the world works, but the way it should work, then, you know, let's just start killing the old and sick people in the streets, right? You know, like it's not an ethical system that can sustain itself and create a world of any kind of value. Yeah. And this is interesting. So spiritual disciplines, things like prayer, fasting, scripture reading, silence, meditation, all these kinds of things. Um, I don't like to preach them because I usually when I was growing up, the way they did it was it was like the military. It's like, here's a set of drills that you've got to do. And whether you like it or not, do it and learn it. And, you know, like and it was just very much like a heavy burden that was laid on people. But we have to get to a place where we learn spiritual disciplines because they feed us, right? Like you learn how to pray for the same reason you learn how to cook a good steak because you get to eat that steak after you learn how to cook it, right? And so learning spiritual disciplines is learning how to develop spiritual food that nourishes you. And it's not because, you know, if you want to prove, you know, you got to prove to God that you really love him. It's about I've got to find ways that teach my heart how to receive what God wants me to receive. And so, yeah, it's like a, it's like a cooking class. You got to learn how to prep that stuff so it's digestible.